Hear the word of the Lord. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm excited to be here this morning. Man, some, if you saw me create a small riot over there, someone slipped in a Reese's peanut butter cup in the offering bucket, and uh, I almost let it go. And I don't know about you, but in my world, you don't let a Reese's cup just go, okay? So I had to reach out and claim that blessing. Um, yes, Lord. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for the men and women at Reese's. Uh, and uh, if you notice, we're... Uh, you might be skeptical at this point, but I promise you it's actually going to get done. We are getting shockingly close to the renovations being done. Um, there's some really important stuff happening this week that if it happens on time, it could just be like two more weeks, three more weeks, two and a half, somewhere in there. Uh, so if, uh, if you'd like, we have it, uh, that kind of mysterious hallway is gone now that was trying to keep dust and stuff out. The floors aren't dusty. They're just scored up because we're putting new floors on top of that. So don't worry, but you, you can go peek out and get a sense of just how big and, and beautiful this new space is going to be. So I'm, I'm really excited for that. Uh, also today, this will probably interest about three of you, but as uh, a surprising amount of work, so I'm going to say something about it. Welcome to our newly redesigned Sojourn Bulletins. Lovely. Yes, thank you. If you're into graphic design, you may be interested. It's surprisingly tricky. How are we going to figure out how to put sermon texts and next steps and events and all that kind of stuff on here? Um, but there's a, a lady named Elizabeth who's done a great job with this. Um, you can check out the back. There's a couple, well, one thing in particular we've never done before. I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to take it home and look at it. Uh, and you're going to look and say, we've never done that. I'll be like, I know. We're going to see how's, how's it going to go. I don't know. We've never done it. No one's ever done it in our church before, so we'll see. But it's October 8th, and come check it out. Uh, also, on the inside, uh, you've got a sign-up card if you're interested in serving in the Connect team. What's the Connect team? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, it's the team that welcomes people on Sunday. Uh, they're the team that's trying to make this place feel a little bit more like home, whether it's making coffee, opening up doors, uh, making sure that no one steals money from the giving, stuff like that. And uh, one, I'm really thankful for the Connect team, the, the men and women that have been here behind the scenes the last couple of months as the renovations have been going on. Uh, and everything from making coffee to parking to getting you guys in here has been a lot more complicated than it normally is. So if you're on the Connect team, thanks a lot for helping make it a pretty smooth uh, 
couple of months, I guess. And thank you guys for, I haven't gotten one angry email about the renovations, so I appreciate that. Uh, and if you're interested in serving on the Connect team, you can sign up here and drop it in that box on your way out. Uh, the, the Connect team is near and dear to my heart for a couple of reasons. Um, I'll, I'll get to it in a second. Uh, we're in the series on the life of David, and um, last week, I kind of messed myself up on the sermon. Uh, sometimes people will come up to me after a sermon and be like, oh my gosh, you spoke right to me. You're like, that was such a hard word or something like that. And I'm like, man, you got like 35 minutes of that or 40, whatever. Uh, and I've been sitting with that for like 20 hours this week. And sometimes it just, it, it's hard to, um, it's difficult wrestling with these things and sitting with them for hours and hours and hours. And the, the sermon last week got me thinking about my own story in a lot of ways of how I ended up here um, in Southern Indiana, lots of unexpected twists and turns. And uh, 15 years or so ago, when I was a freshman in college, I had my life pretty well planned out. Uh, I, I had a pretty clear sense of what I wanted to do and what the next 30 or 40 years were, were gonna look like. Uh, the first was, uh, if you don't know this about me, I really enjoy being sad. And so I was gonna go be like a solo guitar player musician so I could be sad all the time and then travel around. So adventures and sadness are kind of like core to who I am as a human. Uh, so I was gonna go do that. And uh, if you're curious, you can listen to some mediocre, really sad music on iTunes. Go home, just don't make fun of me about it because it's a little embarrassing. Uh, so that was plan one. And second with that, I was going to start businesses so that I could make a whole lot of money to change the world. How are you going to change the world? I was probably just going to buy fancy cars, but I was like, I'm going to make a whole bunch of money to change the world. And so if you want to talk to somebody who's had businesses go bankrupt or had great ideas that weren't great ideas, I know all about that. Uh, so in the midst of this, I'm living up in Florida. Uh, not to me personally, but God made it clear to very uh, several people who were very close to me uh, that I was supposed to go be a pastor. I, didn't, I was skeptical of this, but it became kind of abundantly clear, uh, and it was also very abrupt that this is what he had for me. So I found myself, uh, now I'm going to be honest with you guys here for a few minutes, so just turn off the judgment, okay? This is in the context of me confessing sin to you, not making statements about this part of the country. I was moving from the kind of luxurious beaches of Northwest Florida to Kentucky, um, okay, which grew up in Ohio, which isn't like the coolest place. And even for us, we're like, Kentucky, right? Like, why would you go there? So it felt like a huge step down, very awkward. And what's more, I went from that to a Southern Baptist seminary. And I didn't grow up going to church. Um, I certainly wasn't a Baptist, let alone a Southern Baptist. My only experience with Southern Baptists was this kind of South Alabama world that I lived in, which they're not like... Uh, the best example of our wonderful family, maybe is a kind of way to put it. Uh, so again, I'm gonna make money. I'm gonna do all this stuff and live in this luxurious place in Florida. Now I'm in Kentucky. Now I'm in the Southern Baptist Seminary in Kentucky. And I remember waking up one day on the Connect team over in Louisville, Kentucky. And I was like, my, how life has gone in an interesting way for me. Uh, making coffee, in this old renovated school building in Germantown and wondering, how, how did I get here? How did this happen? Not with any sense of like anger anymore. I was surprised how much I actually quite enjoyed Louisville. 
And for my wife and I, it felt like home. And all of a sudden, Kentucky felt cool, right? It was like, we're from Kentucky, and we're going to get shirts, and we're going to get stuff, right? Like Kentucky. And then, and then, again, he didn't make it really necessarily clear to me, but to a bunch of other people, uh, the Lord made it clear that he wanted me to go serve at a struggling church in Indiana, which for us, it was like, well, we handled the Kentucky thing, but now Indiana. And this is where I'm not... I'm not saying I was right in believing it, okay? But for us, it was like, what in the world is happening in Indiana? And if you told the 19-year-old version of me, you are going to, one, be a pastor, two, in a small town in Indiana, I would have said something went wrong along the way, right? Like, somehow this plan got derailed. Uh, and yet, as I, as I look back on the, these last 15 years of my life, I find them to be, frankly, unspeakable unspeakably beautiful. Uh, I see the hand of the Lord all over my life. Even though at the time, uh, I often wondered if he had left me. I often wondered if he had any idea what was going on. Uh, I saw him use me when I didn't want to be used. Uh, I saw him taking me places where I didn't want to be. And where I am now, I look back and I am exceedingly grateful. There's nowhere else I would rather live. I look at my family, my friends, and what's happened in our church, and I'm just overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. Um, and so here's what, where it started messing me up last week. We, we talked about last week in the story of David and Goliath, a, a God who uses the improbable to do the impossible. It was a phrase that we, we said a few times, a God who uses the improbable to do the impossible. And it was a little bit easy to see because we had this epic scale of the shepherd fighting the giant. You know, it felt like something out of a movie. And this week, we, we get the same idea, um, but it's just at a different scale. It's, it's from a different perspective. We move from this kind of, uh, I don't know, like Ridley Scott warrior epic summer blockbuster to kind of like a Tuesday afternoon Bible soap opera. And, and the same God who does the improbable to do the impossible is at work in this small, bizarre scale Two, and I'm, I'm, we're going to cover two chapters of the Bible, 1 Samuel 18 and 19 today. And I'm telling you guys, uh, it's some of the strangest stuff in the Bible. Um, it's two of the strangest chapters in the Bible. And, and in it, we see a gracious God whose plans never fail, despite the soap opera that is going on. We see a God who will use us even when we don't want to be used. And, and what's more, we'll see a God who will use us in, in ways that might seem strange or to us, a good church people, even offensive. So let me fill you in what's happening here. Chapters 18 and 19 of 1 Samuel. It, it begins uh, right after the Philistine's head has been cut off. So they're fresh off battle and everybody's pumped up to see him. Uh, David and Saul come back to town and it's like, it's like the Beatles show up. Did you notice? I don't think they're all that different from us back then than they are now. And I think it's hilarious that the text points out that it's the ladies that come. There's a crowd of women that come. And what are they doing? They're screaming. They're dancing. Uh, they're ba beating tambourines. And, and can you imagine what it would be like to be David? A teenage boy who spends most of his time with sheep. And he comes home and all of the girls are screaming and shouting at him. Right? It's like, you got to be living the dream a little bit here, David. And listen, listen to what they're saying. Here's the song that they're singing. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And they're just screaming. Yeah. 
Did you notice it said that Saul killed his thousands? The king killed his thousands. The shepherd boy killed his ten thousands. It says David killed ten times more than Saul. And the leaders back then, they kind of remind me of like evangelical pastors because they're obsessed with numbers, right? So, so Saul, some of you church people will think about that later and be like, oh, I get it. Now it's a good one. <laughs> so Saul is in sense like, they said David killed 10 times more people than me. And he starts flipping out. He starts growing increasingly more jealous and skeptical of David. The next day, we could, we could do a whole sermon on this. You should go study your Bible and, th- and think about what's happening here. The next day, uh, a tormenting spirit from God, text says from God, comes upon Saul. He turns into a raving madman and he tries to kill David by throwing a spear at him. And not once, but twice. We don't get a lot of details. The similar stuff kind of happens in the gospels where it's like a huge crowd came to kill Jesus, but he slipped away and they couldn't find him. You're like, what happened there? I'm not really sure. But somehow David dodged both of these spears and he gets out. This only makes David or Saul more afraid of David. He doesn't have regret. He's not second guessing himself. He makes him more afraid of David because this must mean that the spirit of the Lord is on David. There's this awareness in Saul that he's not just fighting against David, but against God himself. So he makes David the commander of a thousand men, thinking, if I send this young boy out with a bunch of warriors, maybe he'll get himself killed. And then the blood will be on the enemy's hands and we can all mourn David and I'll get what I want. The exact opposite happens though. Like David is out messing fools up and they they kill everybody, and it just makes the people love him even more. Uh, David celebrated, his popularity grows, which, as you might expect at this point, only makes Saul crazier. So he he ramps up his scheme here, and listen, (laughs) he decides that he'll have David marry his oldest daughter. He'll do an arranged marriage, and he'll ask David to go fight to prove that he's worthy to marry his daughter. It's a similar idea of what he's doing before. Here's his rationale in verse 17. I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself. Now, here's what this guy's thinking. Uh, I will let my daughter get engaged so I can have her fiance killed. It's a little bit nuts. David, though, remember, he's from a poor family. He's a shepherd. He says, I'm not worthy to marry this woman. I can't, <laughs> can't marry in the king's family. Uh, and so out of his humility or maybe self-awareness, I don't know, he, he dodges this bullet. But a little while later, another one of Saul's daughters falls in love with David. The first one doesn't say anything about love or romance or affection, but now one of Saul's daughters is in love with David and he tries to play the humble card again. He says he, he can't afford the wedding, essentially. I'm, I'm too poor. I can't afford the requirements of what it would take to be able to marry this woman. I'm just a little old shepherd boy, me. Uh, now I'm really sorry about what's about to happen here, but this is the Bible, okay? We have Bible church, so this is what it is. He comes to dad, says, can't afford her, dad. And here's what dad says. This is in the Bible again, okay? Chapter 18, verse 25. Tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I want. Thank you. Yeah, that's the appropriate reaction. (laughs) But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. 
Stunning lack of creativity on Saul's part in some ways. I'll throw a spear, that didn't work. I'll try throwing a spear again. I'll have David lead some armies to get him killed. That didn't work, let's try it again. That didn't work, let's give David some crazy mission here and see if, if that will work. So he gives him this totally bizarre request, right? 100 foreskins. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody because I'm not explaining it. <laughs> so what does David do? And thankfully, the Bible gives us no details on this. It says, David went out and got 200 foreskins and brought them to Saul. Which is like, how do you deliver that, right? Like, I'm sorry, man. It's in the Bible, okay? So he does it. And Saul loses it. Um, Saul, from this point on, stops being indirect and begins explicitly plotting to kill David. No more of this indirect scheming stuff. Uh, he sends soldiers at one point. And his wife, David's wife, uh, Michal, sneaks him out of the house. Think about this. The dad sends soldiers to his daughter's house to kill her husband. She kind of pulls a, a bit of a Ferris Bueller on him. Um, she tells the soldiers that he's too sick to come to the door. She shows him his bed, which she's filled with little idols from their house, uh, and then some animal hair. And be like, look, he's too sick. And all the while, David had jumped out a window and run away to go hide with Samuel. Because surely if there's one place that Saul won't try to kill me, it's with the prophet Samuel. It's very hard for us to relate to the amount of fear and reverence and honor that would have been wrapped up in a prophet back then. It's kind of like maybe asking for sanctuary in the Vatican or something like that. But Saul sends troops to Samuel. Imagine the scene like the Italian army sending military troops in force to the Vatican, tanks in St. Peter's Square. Listen to what happens to the soldiers. They get there. When they arrived and saw Samuel leading a group of prophets who were prophesying, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's men and they also began to prophesy. They don't kill David because they're, they're too busy prophesying, uh, legitimately speaking the words of God, filled with the Spirit of God. This is the same language that's used to describe what happened to David when he was anointed or to prophets throughout the Old Testament when they begin speaking the words of God. This isn't the soldiers doing like a youth camp thing where they're faking it for everybody else just to fit in. This is legitimate. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon them and they're speaking the words of God. Saul gets word of this. You can imagine his reaction. He's upset, so he sends more troops. Guess what happens when the second round of troops get there? The same thing. They start prophesying. And eventually Saul's like, okay, that's it. I've, I've done the indirect stuff. I've sent the troops. If you want something done yourself, do it, done right, do it yourself. And so Saul, the king of Israel, shows up to Samuel's camp and says, bring me Saul and David. Where are Saul and David? The, the king is going to kill them himself. And this is what happens. Chapter 19, starting in verse 23. On the way to Naoth and Ramah, the Spirit of God came even upon Saul, and he too 
began to prophesy all the way to Naoth. He tore off his clothes and lay naked on the ground all day and all night, prophesying in the presence of Samuel. That final scene really seals the deal for me in terms of making this some of the strangest chapters in the whole Bible. Here's, let me give you a summary real quick, okay? We've got demon possession, tormenting spirit from the Lord is sent to the king. There's a bit of a love triangle. There's a murder-plotting father-in-law. The royal family is scheming against one another. And finally, the king is prophesying naked on the ground all day and all night. So what do we do with something like this? Like, what is God trying to show us in this? It's in the Bible. Uh, one, of the th- one of the things I can't shake uh, as we've been going through the life of David and as I've been reading First and Second Samuel for a little while now is this, uh, this heartbreaking descent of Saul into madness. And I think one of the big lessons for us in in these chapters, but really these two books, is that jealousy uh, results in self-destructive slavery. And we, we see way back in the beginning of chapter 18, the seeds of Saul's jealousy towards David, because he hears these ladies sing their song, and, and this is what he says after they sing their song. Uh, what is this, he said? They credit David with 10,000s and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. He's not just concerned about David being celebrated. He's concerned that his throne is at stake. And everything that happens from that moment on is is Saul trying to preserve his throne. It was the consuming desire of his life. It was his most important possession. It was the thing that he wanted. And the more popular David got, the more filled with envy and jealousy Saul became. And this desire to be king and to remain a king ended up becoming a slave master for Saul. Everything he did was in service of that. He manipulated his own children. He attempted murder. And Saul's jealousy blinded him to the will of the Lord and made him actively work against it. He knew what God wanted. And yet Saul wanted what he wanted so badly, it didn't matter what the Lord wanted. Saul goes from being the anointed king of Israel to a blasphemer trying to prevent God's will from being done. And this consuming jealousy eventually costs him the very thing that he wanted. He fought so hard to hold on to the throne and the way he did that ends up costing him the throne. It just makes me wonder, what is it for us? What is the thing that you want more than anything else? What is the desire that consumes you? If I just had this, I need this for my life to mean something. If this worked out for me, then I know everything would be okay. There's lots of times it's really good things. I hear stuff like, if I could just get that ministry opportunity in the seminary town, if I could just become, if I could just preach. Hear from other people, you know, if I could just find a spouse, if we could only have children, These are good desires that are, I think, pleasing to the Lord at their core. But when they become consuming or or when we look at other people and begin uh, becoming filled with envy and jealousy, thinking we deserve what they have, 
my life should look more like theirs, it can become this consuming slave master that destroys us. Can you see the ways that these consuming desires have become destructive for you? You ever wanted something so bad, it's all you think about. You can't be happy when you see somebody else having what you think you want. And so you work and you strive and you manipulate and you get it and you see the destruction and devastation it cost you. I think in the story, God speaks a powerful lesson into our self-destructive jealousy and he kind of lays some options out in front of us. I see him saying or, or trying to show us in here that nothing can thwart the plans of God, uh, which for my, my, by a show of thumb fidgeting, who struggles with anxiety? <laughs> you know, you ever have those feelings that maybe you're faced with, you got a decision coming up this week and it's like, are we going to buy the house? We're we not going to buy the house. We have the other kid or not have the kid? Are we going to do this school? We're going to do that school. We're going to, should we get married? Should we keep dating? And you're filled with all this stress because what if you do the wrong one, right? And then you'll derail the universe, which we know isn't true, but isn't that how it feels? I don't know. Should we go organic or should we do whatever? You know, like, (laughs) and everything can feel like such a huge deal. Um. I want to point out a couple of things for you. There's, there's a lot more, but I'm just going to point out two, and you can go back and find some more um, evidence that you cannot stop the plans of God. So first, Michal, David's wife. Um, did, it, did it stick out to you that she lied to the soldiers? Which as a reminder, a lying goes against the top 10, right? Lying is one of the big ones. Do not lie Thus saith the Lord. And David's wife lies. She said David was sick and couldn't come to the door. What was true? David didn't want to die, so he jumped out the window, right? Uh, And as evidence for her lie, she showed him a bed that was filled with idols and animal hair. And we're like, ooh, clever, cool. And what really hit me earlier this week is they've got idols in their house. Like David who said, the Lord rescued me from bears and lions last week. Uh, David, who had the spirit of the Lord come upon him when the prophet of the Lord anointed him. David, who filled with the Holy Spirit, killed Goliath, went home and worshiped his idols. God rescued David through a lying, idol-worshiping wife. And maybe you're like, well, it's just one union, right? They're one flesh. And so she was looking out. She's being a loving wife and the ends justify the means. It's like a Hebrew midwives kind of a situation. And check it out now. Listen to what she says. Saul says to his daughter, how could you betray me? And this is what she says. Verse 17. I had to. David threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Well, that's not true either. So I'm not endorsing lying, and I'm not saying you should worship idols. I'm not saying if you're a liar and an idolater, don't worry, God will use you anyway. What I'm saying is that a lying, idol-worshiping person was used by God to fulfill God's plan to make David a king. She was in blatant sin, and God still used her. And So that's that's the first little pericope from this story that sticks out to me. The second one, which should make us all even more uncomfortable, is how the scene ends. 
Not just because, whatever, naked king rolling around prophesying. That's uncomfortable. But this is the king who is hard-hearted and dead set against the plan of God. He's trying to murder God's anointed one. And what happens? God fills him with his spirit and makes him prophesy. God speaks his own spirit-empowered words through this awful, sinful maniac. What this is showing us is that nothing can stop God from achieving God's plans, and God will achieve his plans however he wants, using whomever he wants. Consuming jealousy will lead us to live as enemies of God, which, just to be clear, will not stop God's plan. It just may mean that he'll have to make you crazy and use your children so that his plans can still move forward. It may mean that he has to flip your whole life upside down, make your children betray you, take away the things you love, Maybe God loved Saul too much to let Saul stay king because he saw what that desire was doing to him. So the question is, will you fight against the Lord? Will you cling to your plans? Is there something in your life where you know this is not right? This isn't pleasing to the Lord, and yet you hold on to it and you fight for it. And if so, there's a good chance that you will be crushed by the will of God. His plans will not be stopped. And he loves you far too much to allow you to remain in slavery. Or will you trust his plan even when it takes you places that you didn't plan? We get this beautiful picture in the story that I think speaks to a longing that we all have and shows us a better way than Saul clinging to his rights and demanding his own way. And I I think this is speaking, I don't know how else to say it. I think everybody wants a Jonathan. Everybody wants somebody like Jonathan. Saul's firstborn, the legal heir to the throne of Israel. Here's what happens when Jonathan met David right after David kills Goliath. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them for Jonathan loved David. Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. He loved David as he loved himself. He was devoted to him and committed to him. At one point, Jonathan comes to Saul and says, how can you kill David? He loves you. He's been loyal to you. He's done nothing but wonderful things. He's done all you've asked of him. Jonathan remained committed and devoted to David, even when Jonathan realized the spirit of the Lord was on David and not on him. What does that mean? He remained committed to David, even when he realized David would be king, not me. Jonathan sought the Lord, not his position. Jonathan did not fight the will of the Lord, even when it meant radically changing the course of his life. 
Instead, Jonathan emptied himself of his rights and devoted himself to David so that David could become who God wanted him to become. Don't you want that? Don't you want a friend who will love you as you love yourself? A friend that is not to use you or manipulate you where you aren't a means to their end? Someone who will be devoted to you? Who their big desire for you is for you to become who God wants you to be. And that, de- that determines the way they love you, the way they care for you, the way they show up for you. I think everybody wants a Jonathan. And I'm in my mid-30s, and I feel relatively certain that few of us are going to have a friend like Jonathan. And I think that's on us, not on those people out there. I can't imagine loving somebody the way Jonathan loves David, laying my rights down like that, being so about somebody else. Everyone wants a Jonathan. But I think the really good news is, is even though you may not have another friend like Jonathan, everyone can have Jesus. Not an idealistic person, not some, I don't know, dream of this ideal other individual who will meet every one of your needs and a real human being in Jesus. Think about this for a second. Jesus, the king of the universe, left his throne to come to us. He laid down his throne for the sake of coming to us. And he came, as Mark tells us, not to be served, but rather to serve. He emptied himself of all of his authority so that he could love us. The gospels will say Jesus loved us in the same way that God loved Jesus. Instead of a throne, Jesus took up a cross Because he trusted God, he was devoted to us and are becoming all that God has for us. And after his resurrection, he decides to make his home in us. So the Spirit of God doesn't work now like he did back then, where there'll be some select, wonderful individual where the Spirit descends. Now, by faith, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, he makes their home, his home, in their hearts. The Spirit of the Lord is upon all of us who trust in Jesus, which means we are new creations, which means we can be free from self-destructive, enslaving enslaving jealousy. In Jesus, we can see the plan of God, which means first, yes, you will suffer. Sometimes we get, (laughs) visitors will come to church and be like, why do you guys talk about suffering? And we're like, because we live on earth, right? Like, Because we're humans surrounded by a bunch of other humans and life is tough. Yes, you may suffer. Any church or religion that tries to give you a way where there's no suffering in life, I would run away from that place. Yes, you may be led places that you don't expect, but this is the promise in the life of Jesus. After every crucifixion, there's resurrection. And if you flip that around, There is no resurrection without crucifixion. So listen to me. You cannot thwart God's plan, but you have a better friend than Jonathan in Jesus. You may not get what you think you want, like a successful music career and an empire of money and small businesses. But are you old enough yet or aware enough to be just a little bit skeptical of your desires? You got the thing you wanted and you watched what it did to your life? You're just a little bit skeptical of yourself. 
God offers you something much better than your dreams. He offers you himself. And so for us, willingness becomes the crucial question. God's plans will not be thwarted. What's the ride for you going to be like between this day and that? Are you willing to believe that God wants to use you? So listen, there's no more room to be like, man, I blew up my marriage and I'm just a high school dropout or I haven't gone to seminary or I'm just a whatever. You know, like all of that is done away with, okay? That's not the gospel. The gospel is the spirit of the Lord will come upon anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus and God will use anything he wants to do what he wants. Even you, even you. Are you a crazy, lunatic, murdering king? Oh, I'm not that bad. Well, then you're, you're good, right? Like, you're good. Are you will, here's the tougher one. Are you willing to believe that he loves you? Not just confess it, right? Not just acknowledge that that's a verse. You don't, you don't understand. I get this so often. Like the cliche is unbelievable. You don't know what I've done. I don't know what you've done, but God does. And we have evidence of God's love for us in this. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. The wonderful message of the gospel is God doesn't love you because of how wonderfully you've done. He loves you because he made you and he loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. And you have evidence for it that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Are you willing to believe he's forgiven and accepted you? Are you willing to believe that you have exactly what you need to do all that God wants of you right now? Are you willing to trust him and follow him because what you really want is him? Or or to put that another way, I guess, are you willing to believe that knowing God is better than having your dreams come true? So we gather to remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done for us, of the friend that we have in him, of the reason we can believe that his spirit lives inside of us and can lead us to a life where like him, we lay down our rights, we lay down our dreams for the sake of knowing him, being used by him and trusting that his ways are better. Or as David would later cry out in the Psalms, believing that pleasure is at your right hand forever, God. That's where the good stuff is. It's with you, Father. And so we remember it by remembering that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, he gave thanks for it, broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. How can you talk about sin and forgiveness and like it's all done away with? Because the body of Christ was broken for you. The Lamb of God who was slain before the foundations of the world, whose perfect life is made yours now. You're united with him by faith. This is how we can say that sin is dealt with. The body of Christ was broken for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine And he said, drink this and remember my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. How do you know you're safe with God? How do you know his spirit will live with you? How do you know you're acceptable before him? Have you ever thought about how scandalous this is? What do we want to say? Well, I haven't done this in six years, and I haven't done that in four weeks, and I haven't done, and I haven't, and I haven't, so I know that I'm good with God. Jesus says it's none of that. This morning, how do you want, how do you know if you're good with God? Has Jesus's blood been shed for you? And if the answer is yes, which it happened a few thousand years ago, all of that mess is done away with. All of the proving, all of the striving, all of the feeling like we have all of this to do to be acceptable before God, it's done away with. And now we can come to him as a father. We can come boldly before the throne of God, seeking his grace so that we'll find it in our time of need. If you're here and not a Christian, be at peace. Be at peace. You're not going to screw it up. Trust God and follow him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, 
uh, the question that you really need to answer is, do you want to know Jesus? Do you want to know the Jesus who can set you free from anxiety, the Jesus that can set you free from the pressure to control and figure out your life, the pressure to prove something and try to be something to the world? He's available to you. If you want him, take him. There'll be men and women up front after the service that would love to pray for you, talk to you, help you process what does that look like. Uh, Christians, our tradition is to come forward or there'll be some stations in the back, rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice. The wine will have pieces of twine wrapped around it and will have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. You can use whichever you'd like. I'll pray for us and then Christians, uh, you can participate in communion as you're ready. Let's pray.